the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Worldview Media Podcast, where Gordon and Joyce Runyon view popular media through the lens of the biblical five-point covenant model to help believers appreciate and apply principles of exciting narrative and engaging storytelling. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Worldview Media Podcast. I'm your host, Gordon Runyon. I'm the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari, New Mexico. And we've got a special guest with us today, uh, Martin Selbridi. Hello, sir. How are you doing, Pastor? <laughs> really, really well. Really glad to talk to you. Uh, for our listeners who don't know you, uh, you're listed as the Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation and a writer for many of those publications, the Chalcedon Report and the uh, Journal of Christian Reconstruction. And that's probably where most folks know you, would be my bet. Right, through Chalcedon and Faith for All of Life magazine in particular, yes. Right, oh yeah, Faith for All of Life. And, uh, but you've got lots of creative irons in the fire, which was why I was excited to kind of get you on and pick your brain about the intersection between faith and culture and, and creative arts. So I'm hoping you can enlighten us. <laughs> I will do what I can. <laughs> All right, well, I'm just going to shoot you some questions here and just be happy to get your thoughts on these things. The first one is kind of a question that I have received since starting a podcast that focuses on entertainment media and, and the worldview preaching that happens in all entertainment media. And uh, the question, sometimes it's not worded very nicely, but it's basically, shouldn't Christians be focused on more important things than the creative arts? I just kind of wonder how you'd respond to that. Uh, actually, this is a problem that uh, apologist Cornelius Van Til dealt with. He made the comment that if a uh, non-believer was presented with uh, a single button that would basically mute the testimony and witness of God's existence and claim upon him, even if everything else uh, was set up as uh, secular and humanistic, uh, and there was only one area left that that witness needed to be muted. That man would have his finger on that button twenty four seven, because he cannot uh, has to be without. You know, he, he wants to have an excuse, and the scriptures leave us without excuse. Right. And I think it's that principle of leaving the unbeliever without excuse that requires us not to leave any haven or safe space for the unbeliever's position, his metaphysics, his philosophy, his morality. They all must be confronted. Right. And all of this be done toe-to-toe uh, with them. And the example I usually give when I give lectures is if every uh, discipline in the world was reconstructed according to the Bible except one, call it, I call it respiratory pharmacology, if we were able to reconstruct everything with that, then every humanist would become a respiratory pharmacologist. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the only safe haven to not be confronted with the testimony and witness of God's claim upon them. So our obligation is not to leave anything open to the unbeliever 
and the uh, and so there are no safe harbors uh, from the hound of heaven, if you will. Right. And so our calling is to take every thought captive, because the unbeliever is looking for an excuse, and the only way they can be left without excuse is if God's claim is over every square inch and every discipline and every uh, enterprise of the human spirit. Because darkness, the darkness of uh, spiritual blindness, invades everything. Anything that time that you Christians leave a vacuum by dereliction or negligence or ignorance, the secularists and the humanists take over with the vengeance. They fill that vacuum. Oh, sure. So simply by saying, let's not worry about it, those unimportant things, then the uh, by creating this uh, split, this schism between unimportant and important, we basically give all the unimportant stuff, in our opinion, unimportant, over to the humanists. But to God, it's all important. Right. Uh, one example I give of this is in Deuteronomy 22, uh, verse 6 and 7, what the rabbis call the least commandment of God, the most insignificant commandment of God, dealing with what to do when you encounter a bird's nest on the ground. Oh, yeah. And they said, here it is, out of 613 laws, the least significant law. And what does it have right behind it? If you obey this law, your days may be long in the land that your Lord, <laughs> like God, giveth thee. So you have the exact same promise for the most minor detail of God's law as for the fifth commandment to honor God, father and mother. So you see, everything coheres in Christ, and there's a big unity. And so, though we might talk about the weightier matters of the law, it doesn't mean that the minor matters of the law don't matter. And so when we talk about the same thing with culture, it's nice to be able to go after the big things, but all you're doing is leaving territory for the other folks if you're not grabbing everything for Christ. Sure. You know, it's, it's, it's basically a matter of forfeit. And when you counsel uh, uh, this way, saying we should only st- focus on these things that we can win, you're basically saying there's a limit to the power of God to conquer everything through His Spirit, working through His Church's appointed means. But we turned the world upside down once before, why would we uh, worry about the power to do that, you know? To think that we don't have that, uh, that God's promise following us, that He's with us in all our endeavors and enterprises, is essentially a position of unbelief. Right. It's saying what Warfield said, well, there's only so much spiritual power in the world and we shouldn't squander it on these backwater <laughs> issues and stuff. And he says, this basically is an atheistic position. So the Christian should have full confidence, no matter where he points his uh, arrows, that when he fires, he's going to hit something important, because to God it's important. Right, as you were talking, it was kind of painting an image in my mind of a multi-front war and it would just be irresponsible to take all the soldiers off the wall in one place simply because the battle was raging particularly hot in another one when you have people ready to climb the wall in that other spot as well sure and i think uh, another passage uh, dr restaurant was big on this was joash and uh, elisha having their interchange with the arrows and the uh, Joash basically was supposed to drive the entire quiver full of arrows into the ground, shoot them into the ground, signify victory. But instead, he only drove two or three arrows into the ground, about the entire set of victories that they were going to have over Syria. Right. And the prophet goes ballistic. He says, why did you stop? Why didn't you unload all of God's arrows into the ground? Right. Now you're going to have problems because you didn't take over all that territory that you're supposed to have. Yeah. And I'll tell you exactly why Joash did that, as Rashmi points out. He didn't want to have the responsibility of dealing with Assyria on the other side of Syria. He wanted to maintain this buffer state. He wanted to limit his victories, the things that he can control, and not give it over to God. And so 
caused him to write off God's victory and settle for his own version of power politics. Oh, wow. uh, and this we do in every area. We have a catastrophe on our hands, and we limit the God, Holy One of Israel, according to the psalm there, obviously. But we're not to limit the Holy One of Israel, and certainly not his claims over us and over those made in his image. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, as you talk as well, it it kind of pushes me to think in terms of vocation and calling, and that what you're saying lends... Uh, value and importance to all vocations. Am I hearing you right? Or Yes, there's a reason why we talk about the priesthood of all believers, and mm. we need to uh, see this in its full depth and scope. Sure. Not just in a sacerdotal sense, but in a stretch of the imagination. Right, right. Uh, and I think one of the passages that I quote a lot, I think it's in Proverbs 21 where uh, the haughty look and the proud uh, eyes and says even the plowing of the wicked is sin yeah. and as I point out uh, if plowing can be sinful then anything can be sinful there's no neutral area and so therefore we have a claim even in vocational capacities like plowing to do it properly yeah. and for people who say well how would you know how to plow properly I said well look at the second half of Isaiah 28 the Lord spends about eight verses explaining how I said, so the Bible is not quiet on these points, and it sets this out as an example, as a paradigm for us. If you can do plowing, which is pretty menial stuff, in a right and a wrong way, one according to God's wisdom and the other sinfully, then every vocation can be captured for Christ in a godly way. Now it's up to us to put the pieces together, yeah. but God's saying, I gave you the tools, I gave you the Holy Spirit, you have my word, and with this, uh, you have everything that's necessary, right? You're fully equipped for every good work. And then you take that sense, not only good works of the Spirit, but also vocationally good work. You're still equipped there. Right. Take these ideas and apply them, extend them, go deeper with general equity, extend it in, in space and across the culture, and extend it in depth and going deeper and farther than humans have gone. Because uh, I think we've only scratched the surface in many vocations of what can actually be done. Sure. Sure. Well, that that kind of dovetails into my next question, uh, and it, it may be a chicken or the egg sort of thing, but does a Christian culture produce Christian art, or does Christian art have a role in producing a Christian culture? Do you know what I'm asking? <laughs> yeah, I think we have, uh, one is the forest, and the other is the trees that comprise the forest. Okay. To have a crabby Christian culture that has zero art, it would be quite an achievement. It sounds like, <laughs> you know, the stone's so heavy you can't move it on God's part. So we have to say that these things are part and parcel. They're warp and woof, right? Okay. Uh, there's no fabric unless you have both the north-south and east-west strings holding it all together. Uh, and so I think it, it's, it's both. There's a sense in which culture is a composite of uh, our legacies, if you will. And it also the shape of the future. Your culture will shape your future because the future will be set up in terms of what was achieved in the past. You're going to right. stand on the shoulders of giants or you're going to stand on the shoulders of pygmies. It's your choice. <laughs> in my view, you're yeah. better off standing on the shoulders of giants, and that's why I propound certain key figures throughout history saying, there's a place to start. Stand on that right. uh, mountaintop and then reach for the heavens. Don't go to the you know the valleys and the deserts, uh, when, especially the humanistically generated ones. Go to the ones where we've been fruitful before. Uh, revisit that and start all over again. So I think we have a lot of work to do that's been 
Uh, it's actually erected on the wrong foundation for several yeah. centuries at least, certainly right. in some of the fields that I'm interested in, like music. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that kind of makes me think uh, of the quote, I believe it's Henry Van Til said that culture is religion externalized. Yes. And I'm kind of thinking, is art then, is art kind of culture on display so that art and culture and religion are kind of like three wheels that are all turning on the same axis or is that a decent way to think of that? Or <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, there's a passage in Psalm 119 and it's something that we don't take to heart like we ought to. Um, but he says, um, essentially, teach me good tastes. And it's the oh. Hebrew word to am, to taste. And so, you know, the, I think the King James says, give me right affections. Oh, okay. But it's a sense of taste, and it can be meant in the aesthetic sense, too. And most people don't bother praying. We wish as pastors, of course, that they would pray for wisdom, because God will give that. But we don't even pray for good taste. We kind of assume <laughs> that our existing taste is perfectly fine, right. and God's going to make use of it, even if it's a cretin, if you will. <laughs> right. um, and, and if you don't know any better, you're going to do with what you got. But if you can do better, why abandon uh, an existing legacy and start all over again? So one of my pet peeves, and I've said it probably on three podcasts in the last couple of years, is we keep reinventing the wheel unnecessarily when we have existing stakes in the ground that we can grab and build upon. So yeah. uh, there have been examples of Christian culture that have extended almost out of the limit uh, for what was possible at the time, and essentially we're starting all over again in what I call the perpetual kindergarten. We're just going to repeat, rinse and repeat, <laughs> yeah. as they say on the shampoo bottle, right? That's all we're <laughs> right. doing. It's yeah. not getting any farther along, uh, and, and everyone suffers as a result. So... Uh, consequently, we, we lower our standards in order to achieve this. You know, we always squawk when, oh, those high schools, public school system, they always are renorming the SAT scores. Well, Christians are notorious for renorming uh, our cultural achievements each time, and each time we lower the bar. <laughs> and at this point, yeah. it's not just playing limbo, the bar is under the ground, we're digging a hole for it. <laughs> right. So, we, we, we got to, if this doesn't stop, the Lord's going to raise up a generation that will take its cultural um, obligations seriously rather than writing them off. Yeah, that reminds me of something that I heard about the Greg Bonson that he uh, despised contemporary Christian music in his day. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you kind of feel the same way or. <laughs> Yeah, I think part of the problem is that we don't give wise counsel. Um, there's a lot of confusion in church music and a lot of different uh, panaceas that have been proposed. Uh, and I think almost all of them are uniformly wrong in one way or another. Uh, some multiple ways, but yeah. <laughs> just because yeah. you know, uh, we can sell out so easily on so many uh, aspects of this problem. Yeah. The problem's not going to be solved with simplistic things like, oh, Let's just chant on a single tone, get a pitch pipe, and we're going to sing these psalms on a single tone. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at that point, we've abandoned so much, there's almost no point in, you know, a computer could do that. Sure, sure. So, yeah, I think we have uh, high watermarks in this area, and of course I'm referring to Johann Sebastian Bach, right. uh, that we've neglected for two and a half centuries, and it's to our own hurt that uh, we've essentially consigned uh, our cultural legacy uh, into the ash pit of history. And so only the seculars respect him. The Christians who had this legacy don't know what to do with it. 
and uh, I think part of it is because they're not aware of what caused last to say about it. <laughs> right. You know, we, yeah, well, uh, I was just going to say, I... I think it was something you had written, or or maybe I heard you interviewed somewhere else, but brought up the fact that Bach had a nickname that he was called the Fifth Apostle. Is that right? Fifth Evangelist. Fifth Evangelist. Okay. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you uh, explain what that was about? Four. Yeah, it's uh, it's a term that uh, applied to him um, because no one else had uh, essentially filled out, if you will, the picture. Of um, the of our Lord Christ, so completely. Um, of course, there's always been devotional works of depth and spiritual fervor, but what Bach did was he combined several art forms together to uh, intensify um, uh, the impact of the Lord's uh, work in our world, and gloriously so. And that achievement, even secularists have to confront it. I mean, it is. Uh, I think I made a quote of one individual who said, without knowing it, Bach divided all of music history into two periods, pre-Bach and post-Bach. And in the post-Bach period, he is a perpetual presence. In other words, that shadow is a huge shadow being cast. It's a Christian theological shadow because he was an Orthodox Christian, not a pietist. And and there's a lot of implications of how he approached music, which kind of uh, will set humanistic teeth on edge. And that's fine by me, because <laughs> yeah. uh, we, our commitment is not to please uh, men, uh, men-pleasers, but rather to please God. And if this man, this, this Christian named Bach, who uh, died in 1750, did something amazing in terms of taking uh, ground for Christ, uh, and, and the other point about that is, not he just take it for Christ, he said, he, he delivered it to his posterity, saying, most of these things I'm doing are didactic works. Wow. They're teaching tools wow. for you, the next generation, to run. I'm not the be-all, end-all. I'm the starting foundation. I'm not the capstone. Wow. <laughs> now, we, we regard him as the capstone, which is sad, because that was not his intention. His intention was be to be the head of the corner, and, and he did everything on Christ. Yeah. And then he set all the foundation of how to achieve amazing things in music and maximize dominion over tone. And what have we done? We neglected it and shortchanged ourselves in the process and lost a huge heritage as a consequence. Yeah, amen. Wow. Uh, that's kind of an amazing thought that he considered his works to be didactic or or teaching. And uh, that reminds me of a website that I saw. It must be going on 20 years ago, but, and I don't know if you can, if you're familiar with this or. You can correct it if it's wrong, but the website proposed that Bach believed that music was a language such that you can put notes in order to form like words and phrases. And I remember one section of the website showed where Bach had what he believed he had done is put verses of scripture like John 3.16 into musical form. And you could actually, you know, click on the button and hear a phrase that he believed was the musical equivalent of John 3.16. Are you familiar with any of that? Or Yeah, there's all sorts of uh, things that you can embed or encode into tone. Uh, and we don't want to get horribly esoteric on this. Uh, we don't say if you're in your first uh, three months of learning how to compose music, this is where you need to be. <laughs> right. so at, more or less at, at the master level, where you say, "Not that you have your tools under your uh, under your wing, it's time to go to the next level." And there's all sorts of ways 
where uh, you can do some fascinating things uh, with tone and other composers with, uh, and listeners who are astute and literate would, would appreciate it and say, wow, it's amazing how he's able to uh, weave these things in and out of the music in such a way uh, as to create uh, something from what you would not expect it. In other words, he creates structure, meaning, and that's the whole point, you know, uh, this is why Bach's been criticized by the pantheistic musicologists and the, and the Marxists. He says, you know, he basically takes control over the domain of raw tone and imposes order on it wow. and purpose upon it and meaning uh, to it, you know. Wow. And, and that's a big deal because a lot of modern music is, uh, strives to be meaningless yeah. and just suspended in the moment um, through abandonment of, say, tonality and other principles that are common to most modern Western music, at least. And we don't realize to what extent our metaphysics in the West have influenced our notion of tone compared to, say, Eastern music, which uh, their metaphysics influences the way they approach um, music between yin and yang metaphysics and, say, the, uh, the two, two to three ratio of uh, melodies and harmonies in, say, Indian um, music, etc., etc. So the Western um, approach to music has been basically defined in terms of the Dominion mandate, and this is what caught a lot of people's attention, wow. certainly in the 20th century, who noticed it and uh, hated it. I'm talking about the humanists. <laughs> they know better than we Christians that behind Bach's achievement is Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Wow. And some of these yeah. scholars actually cite that passage by biblical address in their critiques of Bach and saying, this has got to go. This striving after mastery, this goal orientation has got to go. No kidding. And it's all premised on a linear view of time and not a cyclical view or a pantheistic view of time yeah. like other cultures have. So it really does assert a Western metaphysics that was inherited, if you will, on autopilot from the Christian heritage. And autopilot only gets you so far, doesn't it, Pastor? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, eventually, eventually the, the plane slows down and starts to lose altitude. And that's where we're at. We're not quite in a free fall. <laughs> but uh, but we're definitely relied on the autopilot, which hasn't been around for a couple of centuries, <laughs> to give us any new guidance. And that's because we were supposed to grab the ball and run with it. And instead, we basically uh, forfeited to the, the enemy. Yeah, and, and it seems to me then that what Bach did there in taking dominion, it points to the fact that there, there really is, it may be hard for us to define, but there really is such a thing as objective musical beauty. And, and, uh, I'm kind of at war with the idea that beauty is, is purely in the eye of the beholder. It, it seems to me that God must be the, the ultimate standard for that, whether it's in artwork or, narrative or uh painting or uh you know music or whatever and uh the fact that bach recognized a language there uh really seems to point to that for me and i think that's uh, a crucial aspect in the aesthetic sense uh and then and when we talk about uh, subjective versus uh, objective uh what happens when you're in a subjective mode, then uh, you can launch any kind of defense or attack you want. I'll give an example. There was a piece of music being performed, I think it was written by Carl Ruggles, who's a very dissonant composer, and another um, pioneer American composer, very dissonant too, um, Charles 
was in the audience. And someone was sort of got called and boo of the piece, and what does Hives do? He stands up and says, aren't you uh, sucking a baby and use your ears like a man? Right? <laughs> so now at this point, now we have a challenge, and the, you see the problem with the guy who's booing and catcalling, his whole apologetic is that his ears are overly sensitive. Sure. And that's not going to be adequate when you confront humans toe-to-toe with their metaphysics, because they have universities to back them up. So yeah. unless you come at them strong with an objective basis, they'll laugh you out of the park. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you'll, and you'll be deserved to be laughed out because you can't make your own case. Your apologetic is weak. You're not prepared to defend, uh, uh, say, Bach. Sure. And I'll tell you this, they do respect Bach. They don't respect us Christians today in the 20th century, but they respect Bach enough to either uh, try to appropriate his achievement for their own political ends. They actually say this, I'm quoting from them there, um, appropriate Bach for their own political ends, rewrite him, or destroy Bach by removing him from the repertory and burying him forever so he no longer cast that shadow into the future and free the, sh- the future of music from his influence. So we're on call now. We're on uh, essentially on the hook <laughs> at this juncture. What are we going to do with this legacy of one of our brothers who you know, came this way before? Are we going to abandon all that ground? God gives us 10 talents and we return five. I don't recall this being a good right. thing to go through with the Lord. He just like not growing what's been given to us as a legacy. Right. And, and we have not grown it. We've lost most of it. And now's yeah. the time to reverse that attrition and, and do it with some sense of purpose. Yeah, it sure seems to me that there's a, a parable along those lines with the talents and the worst guy in the parable returned it what he was given and and we're losing stuff as we go. <laughs> yeah. It's theft. You know, we're kind of stealing and it's you know you know the passage in the Bible that a wise man looks well to his fields and their condition. And yeah. we have this cultural inheritance. We don't even cast a backward glance at it. Right. We're right. too busy being popular. You know, the, the, we are stuck in the existential moment. And there we buy into the subjective is all there is to worry about. You know, so the romantic yeah. era in music has kind of clobbered us in this regard because it's elevated the notion of artist over artisan, over craftsman. Oh, uh, and Bach yeah. made it very clear, he was a craftsman and an artisan. Uh, and he said, I, what I've done, I've done because I've worked hard. And who wants to work as hard as I have can achieve just as much. So now he throws nice. the pamphlet down at us, right? Yeah. Yeah, and we don't we don't pick it up. We basically say, no, no, no. He's an idiot. He could. That's the one thing you cannot trust about Bach. He really was a fantastic artist, and had nothing to do with hard work. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And, and that's garbage. Right. And, um, the 20th century Bach, Paul Hindemith, took the same position that his as his predecessor, he's a German composer, the 1895 to 63, and uh, he said also music is a craft. It can be taught. Uh, and in fact, nice. historically, it has been taught, usually passed on from fathers to sons, yeah. which ironically is something that's touched on in First Chronicles 25.8, where the, the musicians in the Levitical uh, choirs and orchestras, it says they were children who under the hand of their father for instruction in music. So this notion of passing down these legacies from, from generation to generation uh, is not unknown. In fact, it's actually mentioned explicitly in Scripture, and Bach's family did that, and many other situations, you know, historically, we can talk about father-son relationships, father-nephews, brothers who are composers. There's something infectious about getting that information into people's hands and letting them loose. Yeah. So uh, this brings in the whole area of what is proper 
musical literacy. And I have a radical view that to be literate in something, you have to be able to read it and write it. Oh, yeah. So musical literacy requires the ability to compose music as well as to read it and reproduce it. Because uh, it's not um, literacy if all you can do is be a consumer. That's just intelligent consumerism, but you exercise no dominion through consumption. Okay. You exercise dominion through creation, through craftsmanship, through work and labor. And listening to music, as much as it might, fun it might be, is essentially passive. Um, yeah, creating music is very much active. It doesn't make itself. And you're not just blowing smoke there. You actually compose, right? I mean, I haven't heard yes. anything, but uh, uh, talk a little bit about your composition work. Uh, I was self-taught at uh, age 13. I started, um, I just heard a piece of music that very much impressed me. Um, a symphony by a 20th century composer and it inspired me to start writing. So I took a blank paper and rulers and pens and rolled out the score of lines and started putting notes on paper and never looked back. I had right. uh, two, two symphonies performed by live orchestras and about six concertos and several nice. tone poems uh, played up until about the year 2000, um, at which time I left for Texas and now I use more modern technology to to compose. But uh, what's interesting is that when I was in um, 11th grade, uh, we took a score of mine to Dr. Frank Capo, what is now California State University Northridge. He was head of the music composition department at the time. He looked at the score for about 10 minutes and turned to me and says, I'll I'll offer you a full-time music scholarship here. This is graduate level work. (laughs) I was 11th grader. Uh, And I thought it was a relatively simple piece. And uh, basically, uh, I don't know, my dad made me turn it down. He said, no, 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 music is the breadless artist of path to poverty, even to be an engineer or a physicist. (laughs) But I didn't stop doing it. Uh, I always used that part of my brain. But the point is, if people, uh, and no one was even directing me, but imagine if you directed somebody and gave them guidance, and uh, they could move along very quickly. It's just by not doing. If you don't write anything, you never start writing, you never make the mistakes early on. Yeah. Um, and we don't allow our children to do that. We basically say, well, this is an elitism issue. You know, you have to be best to be part of the elite. And Bach was not interested in generating elites. He was interested in the kingdom of God. And he was interested in a heritage that would be rich and it would be across all of Christendom. And we would say that the fruit of the vine should not be shriveled and dried up. It should be much richer than the humanistic fruit. Absolutely. I even did some studies in this uh, in the Journal of Christian Reconstruction in '83, where I uh, polled oh, about a dozen different schools, Christian schools, and the public schools of LA, and asked how much time do you guys spend in musical education? Interestingly enough, at the time, the LA Unified School District had only 250,000 students, of which only 140,000 received any musical training during their 13 years there. The rest received nothing. Wow. And Christian schools varied between three hours to 90 minutes a week. Oh, now, I did an analysis. I said, now if you actually had it one hour a week, you will get to the point where what Malcolm Gladwell calls uh, the, the, the outlier phenomenon, right? All of a sudden, you have your 10,000 or 70,000 right. or 10,000 hours <laughs> in after a while, and you become a master. <laughs> right. You just don't right. invest the time. That's right. That's right. It doesn't take much. Uh, just not, just some commitment, just some uh, deliberateness in this regard to take a whole area away from humanism. And how does that happen? Well, if 
people are composing their own music and enjoying it, guess what happens? You change the market condition, right? Markets occur when you have a scarce economic resource and people pay for it. But if you take a scarce resource and make it abundant, you blow out the market. So all this money being spent in the music industry is now everything is a big, big deal. God can level it. There's plenty of Christians generating their own music for themselves. And we used to do this in the era of Bach. Oh, yeah. Uh, And nowadays we're resting on those laurels and that's not going to cut it. That's a, that's a sure disaster formula in my book. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, well, we are at a point where we should probably take a little break. Is there any, is there a place, I'm, I'm curious to hear some of your music, if it's available in a in a format that I could get a hold of it. Is there a way our listeners could hear something that you've written? Or? Well, what I could do, um, since you asked, I just happened to finish an orchestration of a piece that was performed in 1994, uh, and I did a very good digital version of it, and it's got a lot of biblical um, themes in it. Uh, each of the movements is programmatic. It's actually a concerto for trumpet, horn, and trombone. My hope is 81. And I could certainly send the files to you, and at that point, uh, you can post them with my permission as long as you put a copyright symbol on them for the time being. Oh, nice. And uh, I'll okay. give you the programs, program notes for all of them. The first one is, and the whole theme of that is uh, biblical journeys with unusual endings. So the first movement is all about the consequences of the resurrection that could not hold him, oh, yeah. and the four key journeys that in the New Testament that stayed off of that. Great. Uh, and then the second movement is about infant Moses, his journey in the, the ark into the Nile, into the heart of Egyptian power. And the final movement is a complete telling of the story of Jonah. And you can see all the tools that Bach gave uh, us on display in this large orchestral piece. And uh, it's a favorite to your podcast listeners, and I'll be the first crack at it. Yeah, very nice. All right. That's great. That's, uh, that's exciting. I look forward to that. So as soon as... Uh, or before we post this podcast for Friday morning, uh, I will get with you and we'll figure out the easiest way to get that online for everybody. Okay, very good. Well, let's go ahead and take our break, and then we will be right back and shift gears just a little bit. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts, where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. And we're back. I'm here with Martin Selbridi from the Chalcedon Foundation. And 
we are talking about the intersection of faith and art and culture and going to move to a topic that's kind of dear to my heart because I have published a couple of novels that nobody has read and and uh, but I'm I'm still interested in how to how to actually get that done in a manner that glorifies God and so what I want to ask you to launch this this topic Martin is are there genres of fiction that cannot or should not be employed in Christian writing? I mean, uh, with the exception of like pornography, of course, but are there genres that Christian novelists should just automatically stay away from and not try to take dominion there? Or what are your thoughts on that? It certainly is a tempting way to go until we suddenly encounter someone who was able to apply biblical principles in a novel that we said it could not have been done. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, even Lee Dwiggin, who was one of our um, critics and reviewers, and a Christian fantasy novelist himself, and he has very strict criteria for proper handling of a theme, uh, found some interesting value in a novel that, if I recall correctly, involved vampirism. Oh, I put wow. all the warnings out, but he mm-hmm. said, look, this is a surprise because all these features uh, that we expect in the Christian novel are present here. There are, of course, the inevitable defect here and there. Yeah. He says, so I'm, I am, I got the impression from his review that uh, he was hard pushed to, to condemn it. He said, perhaps this is a, a stepping stone to something else. Who knows? Uh, and I'm paraphrasing here. Lee can certainly speak for himself. But I do think that if you're starting today, I don't think we should be in a position where we have to co-opt the world's positions and try to redirect them. Because what normally happens then is we take a form and we say, we're going to go conquer that thing. We're going to go write a novel uh, of this style. And boom, it's a mediocre form. Uh, example of it. <laughs> right. And so it'd be outstanding. So it doesn't stand out. It's just one of a host of things. Now, I understand that many novelists are getting their feet under them. I know some very young novelists that I've encouraged. And you can see the progress in their writing as they move, uh, say, through a series of uh, science fiction or fantasy novels or things in this order. And, and we need to see them growing and, and, and people co-opting it and, and supporting it uh, because you we can't start full-on with um, Shakespeare today. We're not going to get 5,000 Shakespeare's tomorrow. It's not going to sure. happen. You have to build sure. up to that level, right? right? The foundations were destroyed. What can the righteous do? you got to rebuild foundations. Yeah. But I think it's important to start down that path. So to the extent that uh, we can focus on things that we are, know are unequivocally biblical and don't need defense from various well-intentioned quarters of Christendom, the better off we are. <laughs> uh, because right. simply because if the only... Um, marketing point for a particular novelist that's controversial, that's going to fade fast. Sure. That's not going to last. That's not going to stand the test of time that it was controversial. Right. Anyone can uh, put garbage together and, and, and <laughs> publish it and say, see, I, I tweaked everyone's nose and I offended everybody. So what? You know, yeah. uh, the Howard Stern approach isn't going to work forever. If everyone's a Howard Stern, everyone is uh, becomes numb to Howard Sternism. Sure. It's not going to work. Yeah. It, because it's not a thing in it that's going to last. It doesn't have to be written itself. Yeah, there's almost nothing more temporary than controversy. Yeah, a novelty for its own sake won't, won't cut it. There has to be substance. 
and substance is always uh, entrenched in the notion of the drama. And drama appears to be exactly what we have in a fallen world where Christ is entered to change it. And yeah. that fight that between darkness and light is inherently dramatic. Right. Well, tell us a little bit about the novel that you have published. It's a um, science fiction novel published in 2010 called Hidden in Plain Sight. And uh, my goal was to tell a good science fiction story related to controversies in modern physics and the notion of suppression of evidence. And especially if the evidence goes in the wrong direction, a direction that humans don't like. Oh, right. That they resent it and they want to cover up and mute God's witness and testimony. Uh, it also puts into play some aspects of God's law, specifically the poor tithe and some ventilated and presuppositionalism. However, we have to be very careful when we do writing like this because we don't want to bolt on the Christian witness as an afterthought yeah. because that always yeah. comes off as ham-fisted and cheesy. Right. Exactly. Uh, the story can exist without it at that point. So unless it's integral to the story, and um, in other words, we have this payload, we want to deliver the payload, but if it's too obvious that you're delivering the payload, people sense it. Right. So if it yeah. is put in properly, uh, you basically get the camel's nose under the tent in a very clever way artfully, if I couldn't say that word, use that term. And consequently, all these ideas then become a natural outgrowth of the story, and people don't feel like they were preached at, and therefore the apologetic import of it, the impact, if you will, uh, actually is realized, except that the entire time the vehicle of the story has moved forward. Right. Kind of like when you were talking about Bach earlier, he embeds these meanings in there, and they're delivered, if you will, subliminally, but the music uh, exists on one level, and the story and the meanings underneath it, multiple layers, exist at the same time. Yeah. Well, as I've, as I've thought about that idea, and I like the way the term you use, the ham-fisted way that a lot of Christian authors uh, turn their stories into Christian stories, and, and uh, I, I think that I have settled on the idea that a lot of it has to do with the fact that the author in question isn't paying enough attention to the to the virtue of having a strong theme before he begins to write or it's not enough to have a plot you need to know what the theme of your novel is and uh and it seems to me like the if the theme is done right it just forms a a background of thought that that should kind of run organically from beginning to end and and keep it from seeming like you're just sewing crosses on on the sides of your shoes or or whatever exactly the point because uh, what happens is that people have become anxious about the evangelistic component of their story right and we tend to become we're very mediocre at evangelism <laughs> and uh, even Armenian in terms of outreach even when we know better and consequently we despair and worry and decide we're going to have to second guess God <laughs> and uh, so I was very pointed in how I even dealt with say the conversion event from the character in my story uh-huh. it was not it was not orthodox in the, in the sense of what we normally expect in a Christian novel and even one character drew attention to that because the, the theme that I was looking at was the one laid out in John seven seventeen. Uh, he who does the, the will of God will know if the doctrine is true. So it talks about the evangelical power of obedience. 
I hope obedience you. coming first and then belief later. Wow. And yeah. so uh, that kind of is a, is a thread that goes through, and by being put in these positions, she sees, the protagonist sees the impact of God on lives through her simply obeying what God's law requires, and it has a, a much more profound impact than someone reading, say, four spiritual laws of dubious import <laughs> right. uh, yeah. to her and expecting a certain specific one, two, three, four formula for conversion that is absent in the novel, and I think people were able to say, you know, God's deeper than the usual uh, 20th century method of uh, evangelizing people. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think that's exactly right. And and the thing that excites me about it is when at the time when you and I probably first started thinking that we would like to be novel writers, man, that was a really closed-off field, and there were a bunch of really well-established gatekeepers that you had to get by in order to get published. And, and the Internet has just blown that all to smithereens. And 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 now if you're a novelist and God's given you a story and and you're and you're persistent about it you can man you can get that thing out there and and actually make money selling it and uh you know that's not a bad thing either nope if you're talented uh, you work hard at it uh, i wrote that novel which is what almost 80,000 pages in 13 consecutive days in <laughs> wow. 2007 <Yeah. laughs> And uh, but it took me two two and a half years to edit it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And, and I said, then it's the same exact story, but the editing was what tightened everything up, and that's where right. all the work was. And I believe yeah. I was finished after thirteen days, and I had no idea I was in the two and a half year cycle to beat on it and shape it and, and, right. and yeah. forge it in the fire and purify it like <laughs> silver, and boom. And certainly far from perfect, but yeah. in the final form it took, you, know, you can tell it's it's a much more exciting read because. You don't, you don't want to bore your, you know, we have to deal with, unfortunately, um, soundbite attention spans today. You cannot write long sentences like your Edward Gibbons anymore. <laughs> you, you really need to deal with that and bring people along. Yeah, uh, that's right. And so I was inspired by the C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy to write. Okay. And uh, that, and seeing Lee Dwiggin with his first Bell Mountain Christian fantasy, I said, well, here's the first great... Uh, fantasy novel in the spirit of C.S. Lewis's Narnia that has a better theology behind it. So yeah. I said, if, if we can do this for fantasy, why can't I try to uh, do take a step out in science fiction and apply the same principles and update the concepts with better theology than, say, uh, C.S. Lewis applied to his work as good as it was. Sure, sure. Yeah. And and where is your novel on sale right now? I can get it on Amazon, and it certainly is uh, for sale at calcedon.edu or I think calcedonstore.com. Okay, and the and Kindle, the, Kindle, and physical paperback. Oh, great. Okay, and the name of it again was Hidden in Plain Sight. Hidden in Plain Sight. So our listeners can just uh, wow, it's pretty easy to click over there and get it on your Kindle, and uh, so. There we go. Well, very nice. Uh, I'm looking at the time. I don't want to. I don't want to take more than is appropriate for me. I appreciate all the time you've given us today. And and uh, is there anything else you'd like to get off your chest on this on this particular subject, the whole arts and Christianity thing? I think it starts with parents expecting more uh, from their children, realizing you know, hey. God says, my children are errors in 
my quiver. What we need is really sharp arrows because of the enemy's presence. And what can I do to make the sharpest possible set of arrows to fire into God's future? And I think that means you're going to take culture very seriously and give your children the tools to reconstruct music from Bach forward. In other words, to treat the last two and a half centuries as a humanistic misfire and a run into a ditch. (laughs) And we're going to then basically train them on biblical principles and let the kids loose. And we won't have anything to fear if we train them properly. They can take music where it might have intentionally originally gone, had people follow Bach's trajectory where he intended to put it. So take our legacy seriously, build on that, not on the garbage that came in the meantime, and start over. Yeah. Yeah. And, and do not, this is the biggest deal, I say, do not foist your aesthetic uh, case on your children. It, it's a disaster to do that because you're probably going to lower your expectations and lower the bar in doing so. Unleash the kids oh, yeah. uh, on a biblical foundation and, that, and God will be faithful you know, if you do that much. But if you're going to say, no, I want to put them in my straitjacket, that I'm com- my, my zone of comfort, <laughs> that's a disaster because our zone of comfort has done nothing for us except ghettoize us. And that's going to stop. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Amen to that. Well, Martin, I thank you, brother. This has been really uh, enlightening for me and, and just a hoot to uh, hear the fruit of somebody that's been thinking about this for a long time. I really appreciate it. It's been helpful for me. I trust it will be helpful for a lot of other people as well. Excellent. Thank you, sir. God bless you. All right. We'll See talk to you later. Time. All right. Bye-bye. All right, so we're done here on Worldview Media Podcast. I hope uh, I hope you take these things and run with them. And like we say in the show notes, hopefully we'll get some links up to Martin Selbridi's, uh music, and you can check that out. And remember his book, Hidden in Plain Sight, available at Amazon. And so on behalf of my normal podcast partner, my wife Joyce, Uh, we'll see you back here next week. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Worldview Media Podcast. Please visit reconstructionistradio.com to check out the other podcasts in our network and to download our free audiobooks.